0: You're listening to Sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org.
1: The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering trunk because they had discovered, in the dusty basement of late medievalism, a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, dissolute scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans, will do the same thing. The 200 proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans.
0: We're going through a series in Romans, and the first couple chapters of Romans are pretty heavy on sin and judgment and condemnation, and so if you are newer to GCC and you've been coming for the last three weeks, thanks for coming back, because it's been a little intense. So, uh, hey, uh, yesterday was Veterans Day, and so I'm not aware of how many veterans we have in our church family, so just real quick, if you have served in the military in the United States, would you stand up so we can honor you, and thank you, anyone? Okay, yeah, yeah, we gather and worship, and that's something that we're very thankful for as a church, and uh, that freedom uh, comes at a cost, and so thank you to those of you who have served, and it's uh, important, I think, that we honor one another for, for things like that. So uh, yeah, if you will open up to Romans chapter 2, uh, we're going to, like I said, continue our series through Romans. I was uh, trying to think of an introduction to this sermon, and I ran an idea by my wife, Jenna, and she was like, oh, everyone has seen that movie. That'll totally work. So I'm going to trust her. <laughs> and uh, maybe you've seen the 2016 Disney classic, Moana. Um, it's about a girl named Moana. Uh, also, if you haven't seen it, and I'm going to spoil it, that's on you. 2016. No, 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 no sympathy for you there. Okay. So the story of Moana is about a girl who is chosen to go on a quest across the ocean to restore the heart of Tefiti, which is the goddess of nature who gives life to her people's island. But at the end of the quest, Moana runs into uh, this volcano demon. I don't know how this is a kid's movie, but a volcano demon named Teka. And as she's uh, have, fighting this uh, volcano demon, she realizes that Teka is actually Tefiti, the goddess of nature. She just is missing her heart. And so she Moana restores the heart. Teka turns back into Tefiti and the death that Teka was bringing about to the world is replaced with life and flourishing. And if you haven't seen it, you don't need to now. Um, but Moana restores Teka's heart or Tefiti's heart and it transforms not just uh, the, the goddess of nature, but also the land around here. And today in our text, we're going to see in a similar way that our problem, the problem with humanity is our heart. And the solution is that we need a new one. And the story of Moana is just kind of a helpful introduction. And we see that Jesus is the one actually who travels across the ocean of death to provide us that new heart. So it's a, it's a longer text today, but I think it's important that we read all of it. So follow along with me in Romans chapter two, where we're going to read verses 12 through 29. It says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not not commit adultery... Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision in indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised who is physically under the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals. Uh, I pray that this morning that truth would convict and challenge and encourage each and every one of our hearts. I pray that no matter what we are coming in with here this morning, God, that your spirit uh, would work in us and reveal to us your glory through the gospel. Uh, God, we do thank you for the country that we live in. We thank you for the freedoms that uh, we get to enjoy, and specifically and especially the freedom we have to worship you in public uh, without fear of persecution or imprisonment. And we thank you for those who have sacrificed their lives and um, put their families in difficult situations in order to provide that freedom. Uh, We pray for our country. We pray for its leaders, God. You tell us to do that. And so we ask that uh, you would save and transform the hearts of our leaders at a local and national level, and that they would make decisions uh, in regards to leadership that are in line with and according to your will and your desire and your law. God, I pray for our church family, God, that you would be, Um, just growing us, not just in breadth but in depth as we behold day in and day out the glory uh, of your glory as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you'd use that to transform us from one degree of glory to another. That you'd use me and speak through me this morning as we dive into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So maybe you've heard the question, or maybe you've asked this question yourself, what happens to someone who dies Uh, and has never heard the gospel? It's a a very common question that comes up in apologetic conversations. I think it's a good question. Maybe it's framed in the way of what happens to people who live on an island out in the middle of the ocean and have never heard the gospel, and then they die. What happens to those people? And it's a question that today's text actually answers. So if we recall last week, last week Rick ended that section in verse 11 that says, God shows no partiality. And then Paul answers a hypothetical rejection to his statement about partiality, especially that one that might come from the Jews. So what about those who don't have the law? So look again what what he says, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So the end is the same for those who have the law and for those who don't both perish the one with the law will be judged by the law because they had access to that standard then he goes on in verse 13 for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before god but the doers of the law who will be justified so just because you have heard the law doesn't mean that you are righteous before god it is those who do the law that will be justified and then he shifts to those without the law in verse 14 For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. You see, all humans are made in the image of God, and being made in the image of God, we all have the law of God written on our hearts. So we might call this or refer to this as a moral compass. Everyone has one. And generally speaking, every human's is very similar. There's a reason that it's why why it's widely accepted in most cultures around the world that murder, stealing, lying, and adultery are bad things. Deep within every single human is an objective standard of morality that is there because we've been made in God's image. And when we don't follow that standard, which happens all the time, Our conscience makes it known to us. When we feel guilty about what we do, when we break that moral code within us and tell a lie or do something that our conscience tells us is wrong, we're condemning ourselves. We don't need a written law to tell us that what we are doing is wrong. We know that within ourselves. Humanity doesn't need an external law code in order to be held accountable to God's standard. That standard is written on each of our hearts. Our consciences bear witness to it and failure to adhere to that law condemns us to hell. If you remember in Romans 1 verses 19 through 20, Rick talked about this a few weeks ago. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, this is all people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Every single human is liable to the judgment of God because he has clearly revealed himself to the world he made, and he has written his law on everyone's hearts. But we suppress that truth, we reject his authority, and we fail to acknowledge him as God. And this act of rebellion and sin condemns every single one of us, whether we've been given the written law of God or not. Uh, Several years ago, I was at a bachelor party uh, for one of my friends. And like you do at most bachelor parties, we were having an intense apologetic conversation with one of the other groomsmen who was a non-believer. And this other groomsman uh, asked my friend this very question. What about people who live on an island somewhere and have never heard the gospel and they die? What happens to them? And my friend who was getting married uh, responded to this question. And he said, I think very wisely, he said, that's a great question. And it's a question I would love to talk with you about another time. But what I'm most concerned about right now is you. We can talk about them, but what about you? Because you've heard the gospel. You've heard God's word. How are you going to respond? The question about what happens to those who die never hearing the gospel is a good one. But the more pressing question for everyone here this morning is what about you? What are you going to do in response to the gospel? Because you have heard it. You do have access to it. And according to this passage, with greater accessibility comes greater accountability. Everyone is liable to the judgment of God. But for those who do have access to God's law, to the Bible, to a written moral standard, we will be judged even stricter because of the opportunity that we had. And so this is where Paul turns next to the Jews who might be thinking that they are somehow better off than those who don't have the law because they have access to the law but that only makes the judgment on them and their condemnation more obvious because they've heard the law, but aren't doing it. And so look again at verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. See, Paul is calling out the hypocrisy of the Jews in this text, but we could do the same with the hypocrisy of Christians. You might call yourself a Christian and rely on the Bible, and boast in God. You know his will and outwardly you approve of what is excellent because you're familiar with what the Bible says. You see yourself as a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness and God's gift to your non-believing friends. You teach those who are foolish and blinded to the truth. You teach your children, you have knowledge and truth and yet you teach others but never stop to teach yourself. When you read the Bible, are you applying truths in it to your own life? Or are you just looking for things that apply to, those in the, those, to the people's lives and those around you? Are you reading God's word to strengthen your own faith or to add to your arsenal of arguments against the people in your life that don't have faith? Do you listen to sermons, constantly thinking about how these things would apply to other people? Or are you listening the, word, the truths of God's word proclaimed and applying those truths to your own heart? You preach that stealing is bad and yet you lie on your taxes. You say that sex outside of marriage is bad and you contem- condemn a homosexuality all the while having a hidden secret addiction to pornography. You call out obvious idolatry in others, call them to repentance while bowing down to the idols of work, money, productivity, fitness, motherhood, or whatever else it might be. Tim Keller refers to this concept that Paul is getting at as dead orthodoxy. On paper, externally, you're orthodox. You affirm all the right doctrines and teachings of the church. You can recite the gospel. You can explain the Trinity. You boast in the authority of God's word and can can confidently recite the Apostles' Creed. But on the inside, you're spiritually dead. The truths you profess and the doctrine you affirm haven't gone beyond your head to soften your heart of stone into true repentance and faith. Paul first calls out a dependence on moral decency or a boasting in their moral decency, an understanding of the law and a belief that everyone should ascribe to this law, yet a lack of true application of this law to our own life. And then he goes to religious activity. So moral decency and then religious activity. So look at the next paragraph, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Never thought I'd say circumcision so many times from the stage, but thanks, Paul. Circumcision was an external and physical marking that indicated membership into God's covenant community. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and that all Israelite boys would be circumcised to show that they were part of God's chosen people. And Jews in Paul's day boasted in that circumcision and put their confidence in an external religious physical mark. And Christians today do the same thing, just not with circumcision. We put our confidence in our baptism or our church membership or our small group attendance or our Bible reading, Bible reading or prayer life. Our, our, our attempts at doing the right thing and being good moral people. Maybe we put our confidence in that we were born into a Christian home, that we grew up with loving Christian parents, that we went to church or went to youth group as a kid. And none of these things are bad. They just don't save us. And so think about your own story. When asked to share your testimony, when asked to tell your story of salvation in your life is the crescendo of that story. The main point of that story, your baptism, Is it when you finally found a good church? Is it when you finally picked up a Bible and started reading it? Or is the crescendo of your story of salvation the fact that Jesus rescued you from your sin, gave you a new heart, and that your life is right now being transformed by the Holy Spirit that's at work within you? Are you trusting in your moral decency for your salvation? Are you trusting in your religious activity for your salvation? Or are you trusting in Christ? Keller summarizes this well. He says, it is possible to trust in Christianity rather than in Christ. And this can happen in conservative evangelical churches. Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy, where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to, but do do not make any internal difference. There's an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution. This form of Christianity is outside out. It never penetrates the heart rather than the true gospel faith, which is inside out. Everything we do flows from who we are internally. And when we do this, the text says two things happen. First, we dishonor God. Verse 23 says, you who boast in the law as your source of salvation, your source of righteousness, you dishonor God by breaking the law. So if you boast in the law of God as a moral authority and the source of truth and knowledge, and then break that same law, you're dishonoring God. It's breaking the third commandment, taking God's name in vain, carrying God's name in such a way that dishonors, devalues, and belittles him. And secondly, when we do this, we cause others to blaspheme God as well. Verse 24: For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So when someone professes to be a Christian and then lives a life contrary to that profession, the world looks at God and looks at Christianity and thinks it's either foolish or fake or both. Because your life looks no different than theirs. The Bible Belt gets a bad rap for uh, having lots of nominal Christians. Nominal Christianity is just Christian by name only. But it's not just churches in the Midwest or the South who have people in them who claim the name of Christ and boast in the truth and authority of God's word and then live lives that look no different than the world around them. Churches everywhere have people in them who are Christian by name, but pagan in practice. God is dishonored by our law breaking and blasphemed by those who watch us break the law we boast in. See the text is driving home again and again and again that all are condemned with or without the law because the written law of God and the law of God embedded on our hearts exposes the wickedness of our hearts. It reveals our sinfulness. And so what we try to do with that is attempt to fix our hearts with our moral decency by trying to be a good person, trying to tell other people how they can be a good person. Or we try to fix our hearts by our religious activity. Think that our baptism or church attendance or church membership or Bible reading or our service in the kids ministry is somehow going to save us. But our moral decency and religious activity won't fix our wicked hearts. If you just imagine, I don't know how well this illustration is going to work. It makes sense in my head. If you imagine your heart is like a water balloon, that's full of water. And every time, we sin, a hole gets poked in that water balloon and water starts spewing out. And Whether we have access to God's written law or not, we're condemned for our sin. Our hearts have hundreds, thousands, millions of holes in them, spewing water everywhere in every direction, flooding our bodies with condemnation before God. And so we try to stop the flow of water by putting tape over the holes, Our moral actions, our religious activities, our Bible reading, our church attendance, our ability to defend the faith against non-believers' accusations, we'll do anything and everything we can externally to try to stop the internal flow of sin and prevent our condemnation. But the tape doesn't stick and holes keep showing up. Our external actions don't work and only increase our condemnation. And they don't work because we don't need a roll of tape. We need a new balloon. We need a new heart one that is rock solid and won't leak. But we keep coming back to the tape. We keep coming back to external fixes for an internal problem. So why do we do this? I think we do this because we prescribe the wrong cure, or I think we prescribe the wrong cure because we misdiagnose the disease. You see, we don't like admitting that our problem is sin. We don't want to talk about our wicked and evil hearts. We would rather think that we aren't that bad of a person, that we just make little mistakes every once in a while. But at our core, we are generally good people. And our culture doesn't help us with this. It coddles us and encourages us to believe that we're primarily victims and that we're not responsible for any of the bad or uncomfortable things in our life. And in response to our discomfort with our sin and the influence of the culture, the church starts abandoning the true gospel and preaching false gospels that are sinless and therefore hopeless one of these sinless and i think hopeless gospels that gets preached often because of our lack of because of our discomfort with the idea of sin is what david pallison refers to as the therapeutic gospel the therapeutic gospel is a very me-centered gospel it's all about addressing my felt needs making me feel important, making me feel special, making me feel love for who I am, making me feel happy. It's satisfying my psychological desires. If I don't feel good in some kind of way, Jesus is there to make me feel better. In an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling uh, from back in 2007, uh, he writes this article, it's titled The Therapeutic Gospel. And he's talking about our psychological desires and our felt needs. And he says this about them. These things, they're, they're defined just like a medical problem. If you feel bad, the therapy makes you feel better. The definition of the disease bypasses the sinful human heart. You are not the agent of your deepest problems, but merely a sufferer and victim of unmet needs. The offer of a cure skips over the sin-bearing savior. Repentance from unbelief, willfulness, and wickedness is not the issue. Sinners are not called to a U-turn into the new life that is life indeed. Such a gospel massages self-love. There is nothing in its inner logic to make you love God and love any other person besides yourself. This therapeutic gospel may often mention the word Jesus, but he has morphed into the meter of your needs, not the savior from your sins. It corrects Jesus's work. The therapeutic gospel unhinges the gospel, the true gospel. I said at the beginning, the first couple of chapters, couple of chapters of Romans are heavy. There's a lot of sin, a lot of judgment, and a lot of condemnation. And I promise we're going to get to the good news very soon, but we cannot have good news until we hear the bad news. And this bad news is a necessary part of the gospel. In fact, verse 16 in this passage says that God will judge all the secrets of men according to his gospel. God's judgment is part of the good news. Judgment of mankind for our sin is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we get this, when we really see just how bad things are, we'll stop trying to fix our internal problem with external solutions. Attempting to fix our heart with moral decency or religious activity is like trying to fix a crack in the Hoover Dam with duct tape. The prescribed cure doesn't match the real disease. You see, the problem and the solution are both a matter of the heart. The gospel exposes our real problem, But the gospel also offers the only real solution. And this is where circumcision comes in. Bear with me. This is the first time circumcision comes up in Romans, and it's not going to be the last. And it becomes the major theme in these first few chapters. And so I want to try to briefly explain how circumcision fits into the old covenant, but how it also points to a greater circumcision in the new covenant. So if you remember in your Bibles, back to Genesis, God calls a man, Abram, out of his homeland and tells him to go to the place that God has prepared for him, the promised land. Abram becomes Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is like a relational commitment. It's a relational promise. This is what I'm going to do for you. And I'm promising to do that. The promise to Abraham is that an entire nation is going to come from him. And this nation is going to bring blessing to the world. God's plan to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 starts with Abraham and his family that becomes eventually the nation of Israel. And the sign of the covenant that God gives Abraham to remind him of this promise is the sign of circumcision. It's a physical, visible symbol that has both a positive reminder and a negative one. The positive reminder is that Abraham's family and the nation of Israel has been cut off from the nation's. They've been removed from the nations, called out in order to be chosen by God, a special people that would bring blessing to the world. But the negative reminder is that if they don't keep God's covenant, if they don't keep his law, then they will be cut off from God. So circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, marking his family and eventually the nation of Israel as God's chosen people that have been cut off from the nations to bring salvation to the world but it's conditional on their obedience to the law. If they fail to uphold their end of the bargain, they then will be cut off from the land, from the promises, from abundant life, and ultimately from God himself. And this is exactly what happens. They break the law, they're exiled from the land, the temple is destroyed, and they're cut off from their God. But this just isn't just a story of Israel. This is a story of humanity. We've all broken God's law. We've rebelled against him. We've rejected him. Our hearts are wicked and sinful sinful and spewing condemnation all throughout our lives. And there's no hope of us patching them up on our own. So to deal with our sin, because God is loving and kind and merciful and gracious to offer us hope and a future with no condemnation. He sends his son, Jesus. Jesus lives an obedient life, submitting to the law, and perfectly loving God and others, but then going to the cross, where he bears the curse of our di- disobedience by being cut off. Jesus is cut off from life so that we could escape death. He's cut off from the Father so that we could be sons and daughters. He's cut off from heaven so that we could avoid hell. Jesus experiences the penalty of our sinful and wicked hearts and dies on the cross because of them. But then, All who come to him in faith, in belief, in trust, are given a new heart. And that was the promise of the old covenant all along. Deuteronomy 30, chapter 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. See, circumcision of the flesh was always meant to point to a future circumcision of the heart that only God can do. And it is not until that circumcision of the heart takes place that we can actually love God and live. And this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 2. So look at verses 28 and 29 again. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. A true Jew a true member of God's covenant people, a true member of God's chosen special possession of people is not one who is circumcised by the flesh, but one who is circumcised in the heart. And that is something that only God can do. And it's something that he has done through Jesus. So those who believe in Jesus are given a new heart and the spirit of God dwells within us to make us able to obey God's law. Verse 13 says that the doers of the law will be justified, but we can't do the law. Jesus did the law in our place, and that obedience is then given to us, and now with new hearts empowered by the Spirit, we're able to obey. And this is not perfectly. It doesn't happen all at once, but slowly and steadily over time, as we grow in Christlikeness through confession and repentance and sanctification, we obey God's law not in an attempt to earn or gain salvation, but because we've already received it freely by God's grace. So a true Jew, a true member of God's covenant people is not someone who is circumcised. It's not someone who has been baptized. It's not someone who has a church membership card. We don't give those out, but maybe we should. I don't know. Uh, It's not someone who serves. It's not someone who reads their Bible. It's not someone who boasts in the moral authority of God's word. A true Jew, a true member of God's covenant people is someone who has recognized the wickedness of their heart and thrown themselves at the feet of Jesus, receiving from him by his grace, a new circumcised heart that is able to love God and live. A true Christian is not someone who claims to be a Christian and then lives like a Christian externally. A true Christian is someone who has been given a new heart and then is transformed from the inside out. See, both the problem and the solution are a matter of, of the heart, God's law exposes our need for a new heart, but God's law can't change or fix our heart. But it does point to the one who can, and that's Jesus, who obeyed the law perfectly, never having so much as a pinprick in his water balloon heart. And yet because of our sin, he was cut off on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be. And after rising from the grave to conquer sin and death once and for all, he offers to any who would come to him, not just a new moral code, not just a new way of living, not just a list of activities to perform, but a new heart. So if you're here this morning and you would consider yourself to be in that category of someone who might be, might have dead orthodoxy, you ascribe to all of the tenets of the Christian faith. You say yes and amen to the apostles creed. You think the Bible is God's word and the moral authority. And yet you trust in those things for your salvation rather than Christ. Then my my encouragement, my challenge, my call for you today is to stop trusting in those external things and to trust in Christ. To believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to believe in Jesus for eternal life. And when we do that, He gives us a new heart that's then able to obey with the right motives. And maybe you're here this morning and you're just investigating Christianity and you're uh, not so sure about all of this. My encouragement to you would be the same. There's no hope in this life apart from Jesus Christ. And I would implore you to consider what repenting and believing in Jesus might look like for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus, you offer to us a new heart, not just a list of moral things to do and religious activities to perform, but a new heart that's empowered by your spirit to love you and to live this life as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.